I'm Gino Oriama, and I'm the coach of the UConn women's basketball program. Um, and a lot of people are going to talk about basketball today. And I don't know that that's why I'm here. I'm not here for the basketball part. I tried to write a long, flowing speech about basketball, and I can't do it. There's too many thoughts in my head ever since Vanessa asked me to speak. Too many things that uh, made me realize more that I'm here as a father, not as a basketball coach. And us Italians, as these just showed you, we're very, we're very, very emotional people. Right, Mike? He's half Italian. <clears throat> so the thoughts that I started to have after I was asked to speak were obviously about all the people that were on board. And if you're a father, a grandfather, you feel a different, a different kind of emotion when there are children involved. Because this is always about the children. We've lived our lives. We have a little bit left. They're just starting their lives. And then my next thought came to the original team that Kobe was responsible for, Natalia, Bianca, Capri, Vanessa. Because we're always teammates, you know? We're always on a team. Sometimes it's a big team, sometimes it's a small team. And that's the most important team. And Kobe and I shared some history. He started in Italy, went to Philadelphia, and then went to the limelight and the lights and glamour of LA. I was born in Philadelphia, went to Philly, and went to the cows up in stores. <clears throat> that was a joke, because there's no lights and there's no glitz and glamour in stores, Connecticut. And how ironic that he would talk to me about coaching. The uncoachable one wants to talk about coaching. Probably the most uncoachable player in the NBA during his career wants to know about coaching. And I wanted to know why. He said, I'm coaching my daughter's team. I said, oh my God. That poor kid. So when I watched highlights of her playing, and on about the third or fourth time she touched the ball, Gianna passed it when she was open. I thought, she's not listening to her father. <laughs> so he would call and say, what kind of defensive drills should I do? We have practice tonight, we're gonna to work on defense. What do you think is the most important thing in teaching man to man? Further proof, he never listened to one word any of his coaches told him. So I tried to explain to him. I said, Kobe, they're 13 years old. I think you ought to just say, hey, you know, see the kid with the ball. Try not to let her go by you and see if 
you're guarding the other guys, hey, see the kid with the ball over there, don't let her throw the ball to your guy. Keep it kind of simple, you know? He said, no, I want to know, like, what are the rotations when they drive? I said, come on, come on, come on. So these are the conversations that we have both as basketball people and as dads who have ever coached their kids. Fellow teammates, welcome to another episode of the Move Swiftly podcast. I am your host, Aswan Crookshank, the founder of Gym 44 Recruiting and author of Swiftly, Your Guide to Innovative Teamwork. Teammates. I had just arrived in St. Petersburg, Florida. No family, no friends, and no money. (laughs) I said no money. Absolutely flat broke. I was lucky enough to find an apartment. In fact, it was only an efficiency that was only about a five minute drive from a local Orange Theory fitness studio in which I became a a sales associate at. And at the time, if you've read the book swiftly, you know I was driving a 20-year-old Mercedes-Benz that my father had lent me because he bought his own car. So I was, I was literally living on a shoestring. Like, <laughs> if anything happened to that car, I would have, excuse me, I would have been fucked. I would have had a serious, serious problem. All right? This is how bad it was. I just want you guys to know how bad it was. Two times, twice. On my way to work, on my way from work to the apartment, and that's literally all I did at that point because I needed to build up my accounts. I needed to pay rent at this point. It was the first time in my life I was having to pay rent and do, you know, do adulting, as they say. Two times on my way from work to my apartment, I ran out of gas. <laughs> all right, ran out of gas. I had figured because the apartment was so close to my job that I could make it there and back in under a quarter tank. <laughs> and I was mistaken, severely mistaken, twice. Two times, I'm pulled over on the side of the road because my car had ran out of gas. And like I mentioned, I was flat broke. I didn't have a penny to my name. And one of the things that I did, because I was always looking at my gas tank as I'm driving, I'm praying to God, I'm always looking at my gas tank, is I kept a two-liter bottle, an empty two-liter bottle in the back of my, in my trunk, in the back of my car. So just in case things happen and I run out of gas, I was always going to be filled up in the tank and then walk to where I got to walk to, put the gas in, and then make it where I needed to make it. Now, the problem was, twice, the two times that I ran out of gas... I didn't even have the money to do that. (laughs) I didn't even have the money to fill up a two liter bottle. And both times in which I had to run out of gas, I had to ask total strangers for help. I had to ask a total stranger, two total strangers, if they would lend me $5 so I can put some gas in the two liter bottle and fill up my tank. In fact, the first time there was a lady, the lady that, that helped me out, she was sitting at the bus stop. And I approached, I said, hey, ma'am, um, you know, unfortunately I ran out of gas 
and I just need a little financial assistance <laughs> to, to help me get home. And I promise you, if you look out for me right now, I'll come back. And every time I see you here at the bus stop, I'll, I'll give you a ride to wherever you need to go. I do this, you know. I just, I just, it was a soul sucking pitch. <laughs> All right. And she and I talk for a little bit. She goes, you know what? All right, fine. Let me just help a brother out. <laughs> She gives me the she gives me the five dollars. I walk over to the gas station, and this is South. I mean, not South Florida. This was Florida sun, so it was hot. Walk over to the gas station. As soon as I get the gas, I drive back to the bus stop to see if she's still there because I was gonna give her a ride to wherever she needed to go. But the bus had picked her up. All right, that was number one. The second time I ran out of gas, I was actually holding up traffic this time, and it was a real problem. And luckily, there was a cop. <laughs> there was a cop that just happened to drive by. And he goes, hey, dude, you good? Or what's up? You know, you holding up traffic, baby. I'm like, yeah, dog. Um, now, this was the second time, so I knew what I needed to do. I was like, yeah, uh, well, the thing is, I ran out of gas. And I don't have any money to, to help. I don't have any money to put any gas in my car. And the cop just goes, Jesus Christ. All right. And he just gives me the $5, gets back in his car. And it's like, good luck, brother. Good luck. And there was obviously nothing I could do to repay him. So I just went to the gas station, filled up the two-liter bottle, put the, put the gas in the tank. <laughs> All right, teammates. So when I tell you, if you're listening in and you've been flat broke, trust me when I can tell you, I can resonate with you. Just keep on grinding. Keep on grinding. Now, the reason I, I, I told you guys those stories is because I want you to understand. Today's discussion is all about asking for help and understanding the importance of asking for help. Let's say it again. Asking for help. You will never, ever, 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 ever get to the places that you want to go to in life if you don't figure out how to ask for help. Now, this is a difficult topic. Trust me, for me, even for me, because I grew up with a very prideful father. Very prideful father. I grew up with the understanding that asking for help is a no-no, especially for us men. In fact, there was a time where I was taking my, my driver's license test, right? And during the time, I only wanted to drive automatic. I wanted to drive an automatic and just a car. I felt like my, my father's Mercedes-Benz was just too big. He had a ML320 Mercedes. It was a Mercedes truck. It was actually the same car that I drove out to St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg. And I didn't want to drive it for the actual test. So I asked my sister if I could use her friend Ashley. Ashley had the type of car that I wanted at the time. And I asked my, asked my friend, I asked Ashley if I could use her car to do the test. And my father just stopped it. <laughs> he just stopped the whole thing. He's like, no, you're not using her car. <laughs> you're using my car to take this damn test. And that's the way it worked in my family. You know, it, we, have a, we have a very challenging thing, especially, and this is not just him. There's a lot of Caribbean men, not just Caribbean, just men in general. I get it. We have a difficult time asking for help, and I understand that. But let's stay with me on this discussion. Stay with me on this episode. It's very important. It's vital. Remember, it was rap, I think it was rapper Pitbull. The rapper Pitbull. He had a line saying, ask for Ask for money, get advice. But if you ask for advice, you get money twice. Oh boy, that's a good one. That's a hell of a line right there. I want you guys. To, I'm gonna say it again so you guys could jot it down. Ask for money, you get advice. Ask for advice, get money twice. So that saying is, if you figure out ways to get advice from people, you will figure out ways to triple and quadruple in your income. 
you'll have revenue streams coming in from all over. Trust me on this one, team. So I, I, I've seen it. Here's an example. When I was in high school, and I was the end of my junior year, it was, towards the, it was right at the end of my junior year. All right, there's a lot of college coaches, especially a good council, coming in, trying to look for some players for the team, especially a lot of the smaller schools. The first college coach I spoke to, it was from, the, it was from Virginia Military Institute. Young, black coach, probably he was around in his early 30s, my age now. Young guy, and he was a defensive backs coach. And it was interesting because when I first met him, I, it was, I walked into the cafeteria <laughs> and I first met him and I saw him talking to Coach Malloy. At the time, Coach Malloy was at least in his late, mid to late 60s. And like I mentioned, the, the coach from Virginia Military Institute was in his young 30s. But he was a D-backs coach. And there were, at the time, at least, there was a perception about Coach Malloy that he didn't have defensive backs. That he's, he could not, of all the teams that he coached, he had terrible defensive backs. In fact, that year, our D-backs didn't have the best year. But it was just he had this reputation that he didn't know how to coach D-backs in this new age, right, because he was getting up there in age. And I'm seeing – I get into the cafeteria, and I see Coach Malloy just taking notes. I see the, the DB coach from VMI explaining to him what he tells his DBs. He's like, yeah, I have them backpedal like this, and then I have them look at the ball like that. And Coach Malloy is just writing on his – like, if you could see his pad, it was filled with just notes and notes and notes and notes and notes, as if Coach Malloy was the, the kid and this guy was the 70-year-old man. Like, that's the kind of, that, that's what I mean when I say taking advice. There's a reason why Coach Malloy has won the most games in high school football. It's because he was willing to take advice from someone who was about 40 years younger than him. And I'm talking about feverishly taking notes. And as soon as he was done, he goes, oh, yeah, by the way, this is the last one or whatever. But he was so focused on making sure his knowledge was together. And then I'd, I'd overheard him talking to Coach McFadden. And McFadden was like, hey, yeah, he thinks that the D-backs should do this and the D-backs should do this. It was incredible. It's incredible, teammates. And that is what I want you guys to take away from this discussion. It's very important. It's very important because if you want to excel in your craft, if you want to excel in the things you're trying to do, you have got to find the people that know more than you and pick their brains as often as possible, as much as possible. Now, I can't even tell you how many defensive backs have come out of good counsel that are, in, that are playing in the NFL right now. But, at the, but Coach Malloy doesn't have defensive backs, right? He can't coach defensive backs, yet there's tons of them in the NFL at this moment from that time. Get my point, teammates? In fact, it was I'll, – I'll, I'll even take it a step further on you. Take it a step further on you. Once my senior season ended – and I had to accept the reality that I wasn't a big-time Division I football player, that, that I wasn't a scholarship football player. All right? I just didn't have the grades, didn't have the athletic ability. I was not that guy. Once I had accepted that, the best advice I got throughout that process was from Coach Malloy. Because I, I can remember there was coaches all over. You know, it was that time where everyone, whether you're an assistant high school coach or whether you're an assistant college coach, you know, jobs are being shuffled around and people are having certain conversations and there was not a whole lot of people that I could talk to and get real advice. So there was a time where I went right to that same cafeteria. In fact, it was at the same table in which I saw him talking to the, the VMI coach. 
And Coach Malloy and I had probably one of the best conversations that we had of, of all my years knowing him. And he looked at me, he goes, you know, Aswan, I, I would think that you're a Division three or a Division two guy, but your grades aren't that great. <laughs> so that it's going to be tough. He said this specifically, you're kind of in a tough situation. And then he said the advice that changed my life. Then he told me something that absolutely changed my life. He said, there's no problem with you going and walking on at a Division I school, at an FCS program, at a Towson or a, a Stony Brook or a James Madison. All of them are in the same conference. He said, there's absolutely no problem with you walking on because we know your story here. We know the, 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 the energy and the, the kind of people, the, the, the things you have to compete with here. There's no problem with you going out and walking on and earning a scholarship. And then he ends with, you know, the Towson coach is coming in today, and I'll tell him that you'd be willing to walk on. Man, <laughs> Got to give me a second, teammates, because it, it gets, ah, come on, come on. <laughs> I get emotional when I think about it because that's exactly what I did. It's exactly what I did. Two years later, I walked on at Stony Brook University, got a college degree as a walk-on. And my mindset as a walk-on was completely different. All right, at this level, them dudes aren't playing in the NFL. Very few people are going to be good enough to make it to the NFL. And if you guys have been keeping up with the episodes, you see the, the drive and the, the kind of guess I have are people who have that walk-on mentality to where once we step out into the real world, we are so much more prepared, so much more resourceful, so much more willing to grind. If our gas runs out, if, if gas runs out of our car, we can approach anybody, talk them up, and figure it out day to day. That's the mentality. If I had a scholarship, I wouldn't have been able to do that. Things wouldn't have happened the way they were. They, they happened the way they did. I wouldn't have this grind, this, this competitive edge, this trigger. Teammates, so very important to figure out how do I ask for help. Who is doing what I want to do and who's doing it better so I can get the knowledge and I can keep on moving? In fact, there was, or this is when, and I'll, I'm going to eventually close. When I was trying to start up that minor league football team in Ocean City, and you guys have heard this story, I had gone to so many different people. And like I mentioned before, I was calling all these people, calling all these advertisers. One of the people that was willing to pay me was a guy named Dennis, and he worked for the Clear Channel. The Clear Channel sold advertising. The same way Jim 44 sells advertising is the same way that the Clear Channel owns, uh, sells advertising. And Dennis is who I sat down with. Now, the problem was I had put the $50 charge to use Jim 44, which I took down. And this is, one of the, this is the reason I took the $50 charge off of Jim 44. Because there was a time I walked into Dennis's office and I asked Dennis, or Dennis just got, I guess he got sick of me pitching to him and sick of me coming to him and emailing him and all this, all the messages I was sending to Dennis. <laughs> and Dennis goes, you know, why don't I just write you a check for 50 bucks and then you can move on and do what you have to do. And as soon as he said that, I realized, wait a minute, that $50 is holding me back. He's willing to pay a couple thousand. He's willing to partner. So why would I only charge $50 on something when there's going to be tons and tons of people willing to pay way more than that? 
And now that I'm in Florida, I got myself a staff. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm, I'm better off than when I was at St. Petersburg and when I was in Ocean City. Now it's a different place. And it's because of what? That advice, that thing that Coach Malloy told me, that thing that I heard or that I saw, he's taking notes, he's doing his thing. He's like, all right, I got to get better. And then him telling me to walk on and then walking into Dennis's office and you know, I'm trying to connect with the city. I'm trying to sell advertising the same way Dennis is trying to sell advertising. And he tells me, I'll just write you a check. And it just made it so my company's a little more strong and so has a better foundation to it because I've just been taking advice, 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 advice. And that is my dream for all of you listeners. Please, teammates, do what you have to do. I know it's pride swallowing. I, I can't tell you what verse it is. But it's in, it's in the Bible, Proverbs. I can't tell you what verse it is. But it says, pride goeth before a great fall. Pride goeth before a great fall. What do you mean? What God is saying is, if you have too much pride, you're going to fall. If you have too much pride to ask, the question, ask questions, you will fall and you will fail miserably. All right, and again, I'm going to close with this. I promise you, I'm going to close with this. Just stay with me. Stay with me. Recently, this year, one of, the tragic, one of the tragic things that happened this year was the untimely death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter, his lovely daughter. And I watched the funeral in its entirety. There were two speakers, and you guys will hear them. I'll, I'll make sure I sample them in this episode. There were two speakers that really stuck out to me. It was Michael Jordan. We all know who that is. And there was Gino Auriemma the head women's basketball coach at UConn. And both of them said this about Kobe Bryant. This is how he became great. They were both talking about the things that Kobe texted. Most of their speeches were about Kobe asking them to for advice. And we want to know how Kobe got to where he got to, how, why, you know, he's still, in my mind, he's still here. He's still here. He's never left. He's never going to leave because of the legacy that he's left and the work that he's put in, the, the material he's put out there. Michael Jordan and Gino Ariyama <laughs> said at his funeral, said at his funeral, that he would constantly, constantly, constantly be asking for their advice. So fellow teammates, I ask you, I ask you all, I ask you all a serious question as you're listening in, I ask, I'm asking you, what are people gonna say at your funeral? Because you never know when your time is up. If we've learned anything from you, you never know when it's going to be your time. What are people going to say at your funeral? Think about that. Fellow teammates, continue to move swiftly. We will talk more soon. In 1996, our next speaker faced an 18-year-old Kobe Bryant on the court for the first time. Midway through the game, while playing, Kobe asked him for tips on his jump shot. Kobe scored 33 points that game against his boyhood idol. Michael scored 36 and won the game too. Uh, please welcome Michael Jordan. I would say good morning, but it's 
afternoon. I'm grateful to Vanessa and the Bryan family for the opportunity to speak today. I'm grateful to be here to honor Gigi and celebrate the gift that Kobe gave us all. What he accomplished as a basketball player, as a businessman and a storyteller, and as a father. In the game of basketball, in life, as a parent, Kobe left nothing in the tank. He left it all on the floor. Maybe it surprised people that Kobe and I were very close friends. But we were very close friends. Kobe was my dear friend. He was like a little brother. Everyone always wanted to talk about the comparisons between he and I. I just wanted to talk about Kobe. You know, all of us have brothers and sisters, little brothers, little sisters who, for whatever reason, always tend to get in your stuff, your closet, your shoes, everything. It was a nuisance, if I can say that word. But that nuisance turned into love over a period of time, just because the admiration that they had for you as big brothers or big sisters. The questions, the wanting to know every little detail about life that they were about to embark on. He used to call me, text me, 11.30, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Talking about post-up moves, footwork, and sometimes the triangle. At first, it was an aggravation. But it, then it turned into a certain passion. This kid had passion like you would never know. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing about passion. If you love something, if you have a strong passion for something, you would go to the extreme to try to understand or try to get it. Either ice cream, Cokes, hamburgers, whatever you have a love for. If you have to walk, you would go get it. If you have to beg someone, you would go get it. What Kobe Bryant was to me was the inspiration that someone truly cared about the way I either I played the game or the way that he wanted to play the game. He wanted to be the best basketball player that he could be. And as I got to know him, I wanted to be the best big brother that I could be. To do that, 
You have to put up with the aggravation, the late night calls, or the dumb questions. I took great pride, as I got to know Kobe Bryant, that he was just trying to be a better person, a better basketball player. We talked about business. We talked about family. We talked about everything. And he was just trying to be a better person. Now he's got me. I'll have to look at another crime meme for the next. I told my wife I wasn't going to do this because I didn't want to see that for the next three or four years. That is what Kobe Bryant does to me. I'm pretty sure Vanessa and his friends all can say the same thing. He knows how to get to you in a way that affects you personally, even though if he's being a pain in the ass. But it, he always, he ever has a sense of love for him and the way that he can bring out the best in you. And he did that for me. I remember maybe a couple of months ago, he sends me a text. And he's saying, I'm trying to teach my daughter some moves. And I don't know what I was thinking or what I was working on, but what, would you, what were you thinking about? when you were trying to, as you were growing up, trying to work on your moods. I said, what age? He says, 12. I said, 12, I was trying to play baseball. He sends me a text back saying, laughing my ass off. And this was at two o'clock in the morning. But the thing about him was we could talk about anything that related to basketball, but we can talk about anything that related to life. And we, as we grow up in life, rarely have friends that we can have conversations like that. Well, it's even rare when you can grow up against adversaries and have conversations like that. I went and saw Phil Jackson in 1999 or maybe 2000. I don't know when Phil was here in L.A. And I walk in and Kobe's sitting there. And the first thing, I'm in a suit. First thing Kobe said, did you bring your shoes? <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about playing. <laughs> but his attitude to compete and play against someone he felt like he could enhance and improve his game with. To me, that's what I loved about the kid. Absolutely loved about his, the kid. No matter where he saw me, it was a challenge. And I admired him because his passion, you rarely see someone who's looking and trying to improve each and every day, and not just in sports, but as a parent, as a husband. I am inspired by what he's done and what he shared 
with Vanessa and what he's shared with his kids. I have a daughter who's 30 who just um, became a grandparent. And I have two twins. I have the twins at six. I can't wait to get home to become a girl dad and to hug them and to see the love that they, and the smiles that they bring to us as parents. He taught me that just by looking at this tonight, looking at how he responded and reacted with the people that he actually loved. These are the things that we will continue to learn from Kobe Bryant. To Vanessa, Natalia, Bianca, Capri, my wife and I will keep you close in our hearts and our prayers. We will always be here for you, always. I also want to offer our condolences and support to all the families affected by this enormous tragedy. Kobe gave every last ounce of himself to whatever he was doing. After basketball, he showed a creative side to himself that I didn't think any of us knew he had. In retirement, he seemed so happy. He found new passions, and he continued to give back as a coach in his community. More importantly, he was an amazing dad, amazing husband, who dedicated himself to his family and who loved his daughters with all his heart. Kobe never left anything on the court. And I think that's what he would want for us to do. No one knows how much time we have. That's why we must live in the moment. We must enjoy the moment. We must reach and see and spend as much time as we can with our families and friends and the people that we absolutely love. To live in the moment means to enjoy each and every one that we come in contact with. When Kobe Bryant died, a piece of me died. And as I look in this arena and across the globe, a piece of you died, or else you wouldn't be here. Those are the memories that we have to live with and we learn from. I promise you, from this day forward, I will live with the memories of knowing that I had a little brother that I tried to help in every way I could. Please, rest in peace, little brother. Call it life. One day while the light is glowing, I'll be in my castle golden. But until the gates are open, I just wanna feel this moment. Oh, I just wanna feel this moment. Oh, I just wanna feel this moment. 
Just what? 